Hi everybody, I'm Peter Jacobson, and welcome to Jake's Takes. In my 43 years, almost 44 years now of playing on the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour and doing broadcasts for NBC Golf Channel, there's always some kind of soap opera going on, whether it's with the competition between the tournaments or the competition between the players, but Usually the players do a good job of letting their clubs and their scores do the talking. But recently, we've seen a few little dust-ups between some players and even broadcasters. Don't forget Golf Channel's Brandel Chambly had a little go at Brooks Kepka and back and forth, which I didn't mind. It was harmless. A little challenge here and there. And then also Bryson DeChambeau with his, with his new physique and his bombs he hits off the tee and it's shocking to me I knew Bryson back when he was 10 11 or 12 years old when we used to do an event down in Fresno called the Save March Shootout and Bryson was a great junior player coming up through the ranks and as you remember he went on to play college golf at SMU and he won the NCAA individual championship and the U.S. Amateur that same year and then he went on tour and you know what he's done Bryson has bulked up this year some 40 pounds, and he is strong. And I mean, really strong. He's hitting tee shots like we've never seen Bryson hit. He swings so hard and so fast and hits it so far that I think that he is the player of the year, or at least the story of the year, so far in the year 2020. We have to put the coronavirus and COVID-19 to the side. That is the story this year. But what Bryson's been doing on the golf course is astounding. But he's also made a few enemies. He's made a kind of, he's made some crazy comments about protecting his image and got into a dust up with a cameraman after he hit a bunker shot that wasn't good. And he didn't like the fact that cameraman got in close. And he kind of complained about that a little bit. But there was also the Brooks Kepka versus Bryson to Shambo, little back and forth that they had kind of kind of tweaking each other. But the one at the PGA Championship, which I didn't understand, was Brooks Kepka, who's kind of becoming a little bit of a evil figure in the game of golf in terms of his interview style. He says some things which put a few people off. And this this last comment that he made about Dustin Johnson really set some people off, including Rory McElroy, when Brooks was asked about Dustin Johnson leading going into the final day. Brooks said, oh, I'm in a good position. I've, uh, I've won a bunch of these majors, and Dustin Johnson's only won one. Well, again, a bit of a veiled shot at DJ, and I don't know if Brooks is doing that on purpose because he and DJ are pals, or if he's playing a mind game, or if he's serious. I don't know. But it did surprise me. It surprised a lot of people in the game. And I know it surprised Rory McIlroy, who made comment about it in one of his press conferences. So interesting to see what's been going on in this coronavirus 2020 year of the PGA Tour, the game of golf, and the world of sports as we restart the world that we saw go quiet for about four months. 
You know, I've been a pretty good ball striker my whole career, and I think one of the strengths of my game has been my driving. I've been pretty good off the tee. I hit a lot of fairways. But I always know that my first drive of the day is going to be a good one in comfort, luxury, and in style because I'm going to and from the golf course in my Lexus GX460. I've been a brand ambassador of Lexus now for over 30 years, and in my opinion, it's the best vehicle on the road today. Now, I may have had a few body parts replaced over the years, but that's just in my 65-year-old body. My Lexus needs nothing but routine maintenance, and that's just the way I like it. As a PGA Tour parent, we traveled all over the country, in fact, all over the world. But when it's time to let your kids go to college and be on their own, uh, it's, it's, it can be a traumatic time, and it was for me. Our oldest daughter, Amy, went to Syracuse University in Syracuse, New York. And my next guest, my middle daughter, Kristen, she wanted to go to New York City and attend NYU. And I was freaking out like her mom. So I thought, wow, can I let our little baby girl go to New York City and go to NYU. Kristen, you well, talked us into it. I think that you kind of set yourself up for this because you let me travel all over the world. You took us on airplanes our entire childhood. You took me to New York City multiple times as a kid. And I remember when I was there, I think I must have been 14 years old. It was when Jake Trout and the Flounders had their release party that legendary rock band legendary rock band so that might have been 1995 when you guys came out with yours uh, earlier than that like 80 your oh, second yeah 95 second 96. album so we went to new york city and i was a, a teenager and i remember walking around the city and looking at everything and and thinking to myself i feel really comfortable here this is more my speed i never really felt that accustomed in Oregon. It just wasn't my speed. So I blame you for exposing me <laughs> to New York City. And I should say, once I got to New York City and New York, I never left. I've lived there for now 19 years. I've lived there for longer than I lived in Oregon. But but you're right. It's scary to send off kids. I have kids myself now, and I'm just in sheer panic over it. And I have to admit, I, I credit you with making me feel comfortable down in New York City, because when we would come visit you, and we would walk around. Your first apartment was on Washington Square. Washington Square Park. Park. It was the nicest location I would ever be able to afford to this day. But I have to admit, when we went out of your apartment and we walked to dinner, there were people lying on the sidewalk. And the first person we came to, I wanted to stop and bend down to help. And you said, Dad, just keep moving. Uh, you can't help it. There, You're going to see a lot of that. It's true. You know, there's a, there's a homelessness problem in New York, just like there's a homelessness problem where we grew up in Portland, Oregon. And you have to make a decision early on when you live in a city as to what level of involvement you're going to have. Because if you decide to have a high level of involvement and stop for every single person, it's going to take a lot of your time and a lot of your effort. I instead chose to involve myself in charity organizations that had, did homeless outreach and homeless job searching. And so I involved myself in a different way. And of course, you come in and you just want to stop at every single person and give them a 20 buck. 
and help them up and talk to them about their story. And, you know, I'm like, Dad, move, move. We've got dinner reservations. You've got to keep <laughs> it moving. You know, if you want to do some good, let's donate to a charity, but we got to keep it moving. Yeah, and you also uh, educated us to, as to how a lot of times a lot of people that are disenfranchised in our community are misdiagnosed. A lot of people have different problems, different set of circumstances, and you being a neurologist, you you basically explained to us how this all works. Homelessness, for the most part, is due to disease. It's due to mental illness, untreated mental illness, and untreated drug and alcohol addiction. And so it's not always so helpful to stop right then and there and to give someone what they want. You know, you've had addiction in your family, so you understand you can't always give someone what they want in that moment. Sometimes you need to just keep it moving, but try to intervene in a different way to help them. But it was really cute having you come. You know, I'm 18. I've lived in New York City for a month. So, of course, I know everything. <laughs> and you come in and we're trying to just walk across Washington Square Park. That's it. We're just going from the west side of Washington Square Park to the east side so that we can have a nice meal at the Cozy Soup and Burger Diner. And it probably would have taken us an hour to do that walk had I let you talk to everybody that you wanted to talk to. But I just had to keep you moving. But the cute part of it is after we had dinner and I was so concerned, I I honestly was terrified being a father from Portland, Oregon, and my little girl is in the bowels of New York City. I I was scared for you. And I remember saying to you, honey, I'm going to walk you to your dorm, and then I'm going to walk back to my hotel. You said, no, Dad, you're not walking anywhere. And what did you do? You stepped out in the street. Got got him, hailed him a cab, put him in the cab, and said, Dad, this will take you home. Kiss on the cheek. Don't talk to anybody on your way. Go right to your hotel room and up to bed. Lock your door. And I said, what are you going to do? And you said, I'm going to walk back to my dorm. And I said, what? As you slammed the door as the taxi left. The only problem I had, it was a great taxi ride. He did drop me right at the hotel. But you know what you didn't do? You didn't pay for the cab. I was stuck with that cab ride. And I think, was that intentional, being being a college student? I mean, any money that I had at that time, Dad, it was hard to break it to you, but it was your money. So it would have been just an, an, a bunch of unnecessary extra steps for you to have paid for your own cab at well, the end of the day. Well, I appreciate that. But now that you're a neurologist, all the money that you get uh, is still your money? Yeah, no, I'm not buying you anything. Oh. Yeah, no, sorry, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, uh, a neurology doesn't pay as well as it sounds. You know, it sounds good, looks good, but professional golf certainly is still better. Just keep my two grandkids in new shoes. That's all I care about. But how will you feel when one of those grandkids wants to go to New York City and go to college there? That's the real question. Um, You know, I won't care because it'll be your problem. You know, they grew up close to New York City, so they're probably going to want to go to Portland, Oregon. You know what? We'll welcome them out there, too. You've been here before. You know what to do. Keep your head on straight. Don't let them get to you. Put a smile on Get rid of that frown, gotta suck it up, it's no time to melt down. It's a jungle in here, and we all know it. The fans are fired up, making sure they show it. They're rowdy and loud, not your usual crowd. It's a jungle in here, and we all know it. 
I'm a sports nut, and if you're anything like me, the first thing you do every morning is grab your phone and check to see what may have happened overnight in the world of sports. But Mondays are for golf. Once the weekend is over and the golf tournaments around the world are complete, whether they're on the professional tours or in the amateur world, I know I'll find what I need on Global Golf Post. It comes to my email every Monday morning, delivering everything I need to know as I dissect what happened over that weekend. It also offers insight and analysis from experienced writers and contributors who are as committed to the game as I am. And it's pretty easy to sign up. Just log on to globalgolfpost.com and you're done. And for even more great content, you can subscribe to Global Golf Post Plus, which takes a deeper dive into the world of golf, exploring the people, places, and things that makes this game we love so intoxicating. And with Global Golf Post Plus, there's no advertising. Use the promo code JAKESTAKES when you sign up to receive 30% off your monthly subscription to Global Golf Post Plus. So remember, globalgolfpost.com. It's everything you're going to need to know about this game of golf. It's a jungle in here, and we all know it. The fans are fired up. The USGA and the RNA came out with a report on distance in the game of golf. The big question being, does the golf ball go too far? And they were in agreement that it does go too far and that something needs to be done. They really didn't have any recommendations or didn't come with with any steps that is going to be able to do that. I think what they want to do is they want to leave that to the to the people that actually play the game and the manufacturers that that build and create the technology in the game. But I'm in agreement. I'm a 66-year-old PGA Tour player, started back when I was 22, so that's 44 years, hard to believe, 44 years of experience playing professional golf. And I would agree, the golf ball now, it's crazy how far it goes because I hit the ball as far now as I did when I was a 25, 30-year-old. And it is making some of our golf courses obsolete. Now, I'm also of the mind that it really doesn't matter because when these players on the PGA Tour that hit the ball so far, when they're competing against each other, well, they're all, they all have access to the same equipment on the open market. And whether it's Callaway or Srexon or Titleist, it doesn't matter. You can use whatever is best for you or whatever manufacturer you represent you're, you're free to do that, and I've got no problem with that. The problem is, is when bunkers that were built at Pebble Beach or Torrey Pines or Wingfoot, when those bunkers were in play for the previous generations on the PGA Tour, are no longer in play for this generation on the PGA Tour. In other words, I had to hit the ball in the fairway to avoid a fairway bunker on the right or left of, say, any given hole. Nowadays, the younger players can take a driver or even a three-wood and carry those bunkers. So now the overall strategy and the overall intent of those bunkers in play by the architect, null and void. They're not even there. They're not in play. So instead of having to fit a driver in between two fairway bunkers and then hitting a seven iron to a green, 
players today can take a driver right over the top. Doesn't matter if they're in the fairway or in the rough. They've got wedge, maybe a gap wedge, maybe even sometimes a sand wedge. And I don't think that's good for that golf course, clearly. But in the in the overall scheme of things, whether it's Cameron Champ or Patrick Reed or Phil Mickelson, if they're all playing the same golf course, then that that's fine. But I think we've seen a drip, drip, drip of increased distance over the years. And I think something's got to be done. Interesting if you think about the NFL or the NBA or Major League Baseball, they all use one ball. They all, now, now again, there's only one ball in play with these other sports. That's why it's easy to cover on television, a football game, a basketball game. There's only one ball, so you only need really one camera. In golf, you've got all kinds of shots going on at the same time. You've got multiple golf balls in the air. That's why you need multiple cameras, and that's why televising golf is so hard. And I think everybody that puts golf on TV today, they do such a wonderful job. But if you think about it, there is an approved or an official ball when the NBA jumps the ball. Same with uh, the NFL. So would it be crazy to think about the PGA Tour creating their own ball, an official ball that all players had to use? Now, that wouldn't restrict any of the manufacturers from making their golf balls and selling it on the open market. That's not going to affect you, the average player, or a junior player, or a senior player. You're free to go buy whatever ball you want. But in PGA Tour competition, LPGA Tour competition, European Tour, whatever, in professional competition, if these tours were all to come together and create one ball and make that the ball that the players have to play in these professional events, that might be kind of interesting. I think we could possibly lose this distance debate. We'd lose the spin debate. Now, players would then scream because they'd say, well, this ball doesn't spin as much for me. It spins more for for Kevin Kisner than it does for Rory McIlroy, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that I learned from players like Gary Player and Arnold Palmer when I came out on tour is you you take what you got and you make it work. In fact, that's one of the fun things that Mike Cowan fluff when we worked together in my PJ Tour early years, whenever we played pro-ams, Mike would just give me a club, I'd hit it to the green, and it might not be the right club. He might tell me to aim it in the right bunker or to hit it over the green or hit it short. And then when we got up to the green, he'd just hand me a club and he'd say, make it work. It might be clearly a pitching wedge chip, but he'd give me a seven. Or I might be in the bunker and need a sand wedge, but he'd give me a nine iron. He'd say, make it work. And that's the that's the true artistry, I think, of uh, being a professional golfer is Taking what is given you, whether it's bad weather, whether it's a bad golf course in a in a in tough condition, or you drive your ball into a divot in the fairway, you make it work. So it's just something to think about. Should we move in professional golf toward a one ball rule? Hmm. What do you think? Well, that's all the time we have for this week's Jake's Takes podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Jacobson. These have been my takes. What are yours?